Tonight we are back in 1 Samuel chapter 30. And we are going to be looking at verses 11 through 20. Hear now the word of God. Now they found an Egyptian in the field and brought him to David and gave him bread and he ate and they provided him water to drink. They gave him a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins and he ate. Then his spirit revived. For he had not eaten bread or drunk water for three days and three nights. David said to him, To whom do you belong, and where are you from? And he said, I am a young man of Egypt, a servant of an Amalekite, and my master left me behind when I fell sick three days ago. We made a raid on the Negev of the Kerithites, and on that which belongs to Judah, and on the Negev of Caleb, and we burned Ziklag with fire. Then David said to him, Will you bring me down to this band? And he said, Swear to me by God that you will not kill me or deliver me into the hands of my master, and I will bring you down to this band. When he had brought him down, behold, there were they were spread over all the land, eating and drinking and dancing, because of the great spoil that they had taken from the land of the Philistines and from the land of Judah. David slaughtered them from twilight until the evening of the next day. And not a man of them escaped, except four hundred young men who rode on camels and fled. So David recovered all that the Amalekites had taken and rescued his two wives. But nothing of theirs was missing, whether small or great, sons or daughters, spoil or anything that they had taken for themselves. David brought it all back. So David had captured all the sheep and all the cattle which the people drove ahead of the other livestock, and they said, This is David's spoil. Let's pray and ask God's blessing. Lord, thank you for this, your word, inspired, infallible. And we thank you that by your spirit, you apply it to our hearts and lives. And so open our minds to understand our hearts to believe, and our wills to obey your word. For we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Sometimes life is like a roller coaster. First you're up, then you're down, and then you're upside down. David's life had been on a roller coaster of late. He found himself in an awkward position, having to join the Philistine army in a campaign against Israel. God providentially released David from that dilemma and sent him marching back to Ziklag. The anticipation of being home with wives and children kept David's men going for three long days of marching. Then came the disappointment, the anger, and the outrage of finding Ziklag a smoldering ruin with their wives and their children gone. 
David's men wept their eyes out, but then they grew surly and resentful toward their captain. They even spoke of stoning David. After seeking the Lord and receiving guarantees of success, David and his men marched another 15 miles to the southern border of Philistine territory. Though a third of their force was too exhausted to continue, the remaining 400 went on in their search. Up, down, upside down. The roller coaster is exhausting. It's exhausting mentally and emotionally and physically and sometimes even spiritually. And this is where we pick up our story as David and his warriors go off into an unknown wilderness to find unidentified raiders who are who knows where. As we walk about our text, I want to first focus on the facets of God's providence. Then we're going to look at vengeance on the Amalekites and finish with the redemption of his people. Commentator Dale Ralph Davis has rightly observed that the doctrine of God's providence is ubiquitous in 1 Samuel. It's everywhere. We've observed it previously, and it plays a huge role again in our passage here tonight. God's providence is multifaceted. It gleams like a beautifully cut diamond. And so I want you to consider the various facets of God's providence. As David's men look for some evidence to guide them in their quest, they found an Egyptian laying in the field. And here is the first facet. They found an Egyptian. This man had been sick so sick that his master abandoned him for dead. And this pushes God's providence three days earlier. While David and his men are still making their way to Ziklag and just discovering that their city has been sacked and burned. And meanwhile, among the raiders, there's an Egyptian servant who becomes so sick that his master decides, I can't carry this man along. He's just going to have to die beside the road. And so the man had laid exposed to the heat of the sun and the cold of the night for three days and three nights. The desert is very cruel. It's hot during the day. Very hot. The sun is intense. But as soon as the sun goes down, the cold pierces to your bones. And to lay there in a fever of sickness for three days and three nights is almost superhuman. He had not eaten or drunk anything during that period. It's remarkable that he hadn't died, though he was near death when they discovered him. 
And so the first part of God's providential plan is this sick Egyptian servant laying there in a field, almost dead. The second facet of God's providence in the story has to do with bread and water, with figs and raisins. David's men, although they were in a rush to find their lost families, had carried food and drink with them. They did, didn't rush off unprepared, but they made sure they had provisions. And so they gave this sickly Egyptian something to eat and to drink. After a piece of fig cake and two clusters of raisins, to everyone's joy, the man revived. He recovered from his near-death experience. And then there is the fact that he was willing to talk to David and that they could communicate about important matters. It's not a given that they could necessarily communicate. He was Egyptian. And it's not necessary either that he would be willing to communicate. He might have known that these were Israelites, enemies of his master, who would take vengeance upon him for what his master had done. He might have just clammed up, pled the Fifth Amendment, and tried to somehow survive. But no, he's willing to talk. He opens his mouth. He can communicate with them. We should never take communication for granted. It is one of God's good gifts to us. The next facet involves this man's experience. He had been a servant of an Amalekite master. He had been on the raiding party, and he was an eyewitness to the carnage. This is no random Egyptian who happened to be vacationing in the area at the time. This is exactly the man they need, who can tell them all that they want to know. The fact that he testifies to the burning of Ziklag gives David confidence that this informant is trustworthy. He knows what he's talking about. And that he is willing to help David means that all of his knowledge and experience is now effectively at David's disposal. The next part of the story may seem rather matter-of-fact to us, but it really shouldn't be. This Egyptian led David and his men directly to the Amalekite camp. Now keep in mind that David didn't have any clear idea of where these Amalekites were located. And even this Egyptian man hadn't been with them for three full days. And so he didn't exactly know where they were located either. And yet, in God's providence, this Egyptian leads David's troopers directly to the camp of their enemies. And in this way, God has set the table for David's vengeance. It is all by God's providential provision. What a comfort it is to know that our God governs all his creatures 
and all their actions. He rules and he overrules. And in his sovereign goodness, God is guiding us along through life. He provides Egyptians like this along the way in order to direct our steps. And if it weren't for God's providential leading, how would we possibly make it even another day? And yet God is always setting things in our path, preparing things so that we have the guidance that we need when we need it. It's easy to look at a story like this and say, oh yeah, wow, wasn't that good luck on the part of David and his men? But we know better. There is no luck or fortune or chance or fate. This is God's hand. God's hand putting this Egyptian in the right place at the right time and causing it all to work out. Now, we don't hear anything more about this Egyptian. He disappears from the story. And in one sense, he is not really that important beyond the service that he has just rendered. But he had asked David to swear by God that he wouldn't turn him over to his Amalekite master. And David did swear. That was the condition for the help. So you wonder, what happened to him? Where did he go? Did he go back to Egypt? Possibly. Or did he join up with David and become one of David's band? And if that's the case, and again, there's no proof, but I think it's more than a little likely, if that's the case, what a blessing to this Egyptian. To have been under the tyranny of such a master who would cast him off and leave him for dead, and now to be associated with David, the king of Israel in the making. What a blessing, what goodness that God has brought to this poor Egyptian in the process. Well, as David and his men spied on the Amalekites, they saw quite the sight. Here were careless and carefree men celebrating a successful adventure in marauding. They had captured helpless women and children, sheep and cattle, and all manner of the booty of war. And in view of their great triumph, they spread out over all the land, and they ate and they drank until they had full stomachs and merry hearts. Undoubtedly, most of them were well on their way to being stone-cold drunk. After all, this is a celebration. They were the victors, and none had opposed them. And look at the loot they had swept up, not only from Israelite sources, but from the Philistines. They were rich beyond their dreams. Now, there were obviously a large number of these Amalekites. The fact that 400 managed to escape by riding away on their camels 
meant that there were many, many more that were there among David's force. He had 400 weary men. They had hundreds and hundreds, perhaps thousands. David was clearly outnumbered, but that didn't matter. The Lord was on David's side. The Lord had promised him victory, and that's the deciding factor in this battle. Now, in very typical fashion, the author gives us the barest summary of the actual battle. David slaughtered them from the twilight until the evening of the next day. That may sound like they had a 24-hour battle, but it's much more likely that the twilight here refers to the first glimmers of dawn during the morning hours. The term that is used in Hebrew can mean the twilight at evening, or it can mean the dawn at the beginning of the day. For David and his men to attack in the darkness of night would be unlikely and dangerous, given the fact that night vision goggles hadn't been invented yet. And what is more devastating than an attack at daybreak? The stupefied Amalekites would still be sleeping off the effects of their celebration party the night before, waking out of a drunken sleep to find warriors attacking them. So it's no wonder that David, with a smaller force, maybe a much smaller force, is able to slaughter them throughout the day. He had the element of surprise, and he uses it to great advantage. The result is that almost all of them died except that 400 who hopped on nearby camels and ran away from the fight like the cowards they were. And now that all that is left are the Amalekite corpses strewn on the ground, dead where they had been cut down by the sword of David. This is David's vengeance. These Amalekites had carried out an unprovoked, unannounced attack on David's town of Ziklag. Though it was undefended at the time, these Amalekites had taken advantage of the situation and they had carted off the people and the plunder of Ziklag. It was cowardice of the highest order. These Amalekites had done a great evil, and David and his men and their families were entitled to vengeance upon them for their wickedness. Thieves will be punished. Murderers will pay the penalty for their crimes. And so David is enforcing justice on these unjust marauders. In this way, David foreshadows our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Though Jesus is often viewed as the meek and mild Jesus who would never dream of hurting a flea, that is not the picture that we find of him in Scripture. Psalm 2, verse 12, which we read this morning, testifies to this fact 
do homage to the Son, that he not become angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. We see similar things in Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verses 6 through 9. Paul writes, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you, and to give relief to you who are afflicted, and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. Now there's an image of Jesus that doesn't square with modern conceptions of him. When he is shown as a weak, ineffectual person, they are committing sins against him by portraying him as a weakling and as a coward. But the Lord Jesus will one day be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. And they will come not to hand out flowers, but to deal retribution to those who do not know God and who do not obey the gospel. Jesus is a mighty warrior. Consider how he is portrayed in Revelation chapter 6, verse 2. John writes, I looked and behold a white horse, and he who sat on it had a bow, and a crown was given to him, and he went out conquering and to conquer. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, seated on a war horse, going forth, conquering and to conquer. King Jesus is a mighty warrior who will deal vengeance upon his enemies. Jesus says, it is mine to avenge and I will repay. Evildoers have much to fear from the wrath of Jesus Christ, whose eyes burn with fire and from whose mouth issues a sharp two-edged sword. With the sword of his mouth he will strike the nations. He will break them with a rod of iron, and they will not recover from the stroke of his justice. If you're to think rightly about Jesus, you have to let your mind be shaped and conformed to the image of Jesus that is portrayed in the Scriptures. Accept no substitutes. Don't look to the modern idolatry that pictures Jesus as effeminate, as weak and worthless, as afraid to harm anything. That's not how Scripture portrays him. Well, the other side of the coin has to do not with vengeance, but instead with redemption. 
David came to that place that day not only to punish these Amalekite raiders, but to rescue the women and the children who had been kidnapped in that raid. And what he found there made his heart rejoice. Everyone was there alive and safe. All of the women, all of the sons and daughters, the small and the great together, not one of them was missing. And there, in the midst of all of the captives, stood Ahinoam, the Jezreelites, and Abigail, the widow of Nabal, the Carmelite. And so David's wives were restored to him, and so were all of the wives of all of his men, and their sons and their daughters likewise. Now when David had sought the Lord, the Lord had promised him that everything would come back. He would be able to rescue the captives. And now God's word is fulfilled as he redeems these captives from slavery. Not only did David rescue all of the people, but anything and everything that they that had been taken from Ziklag was there also. And this included all of the sheep and the cattle, along with all of the goods that had been stolen. There were other valuables in the stash. Clothing, gold, jewelry, anything worth stealing. And it wasn't just the property of Ziklag. But it was what these marauders had swept up as they had gone through Philistine territory and Israelite territory. It was really a mountain of booty. And the text says, David brought it all back. Everything that these Amalekites had carted off, he brought it all back. And this includes not only the spoils of this raid on Ziklag, but as I said, the spoils of the other raids also. Remember that the Egyptians had made raids on the Negev of the Carathites, on that which belonged to Judah, and the Negev, Negev of Caleb. This had been quite the extended crime spree. They had stolen all kinds of things from all sorts of people in all manner of places. And now their whole treasure trove is in David's hands. This is the wealth of the wicked stored up for the righteous. And David gets everything back and more also. So it's no wonder then that as the people drove all of these captured sheep and cattle along with all of the other livestock, they boasted to passers-by that this is David's spoil. And again, this foreshadows the great victory of our Lord Jesus Christ. When he has subdued all of his and our enemies and has put them beneath his feet, then he will deal finally with the last enemy, which is death. And as he raises the dead from their graves, and as he glorifies his faithful people, 
He will lead forth a great multitude into the new heavens and the new earth. All things will be His, and all will cry out together, This is Jesus' spoil. He is the victor who has won it, and it is His. All things belong to Him. And saints and angels will sing His praise, and we will celebrate, not like those drunken and stupefied Amalekite marauders, but we will celebrate as the joyful and sober people of the living God, because our Redeemer has come, and He has rescued us, and He is bringing us home. Just imagine the the sense of relief and joy that these women and children must have felt that they see husbands and fathers now coming to their rescue and they know we're not going to be sold as slaves, but we're going home. Dad's come and he's taking us home. My husband has arrived to rescue me. He's bringing me back to our place. And as Jesus comes for His people, and as He takes us home, what relief and joy we're going to have. Our great Redeemer has come for us. And He is leading us to a glorious home. Not a burned out and rebuilt ziklag, but to a new heavens, a new earth. A land where righteousness dwells, where there is no more wickedness, or sin, or pain, or crime, or murder, or death, or evil. A place that will be peace. Perfect peace. And there we will abide in the love and care of our loving Savior, who has rescued us. And this gives us hope. As we continue slogging through this world, as we live with all the ups and downs, as we ride the roller coaster of everyday life, we have that hope. Redemption has come. Our Savior will rescue us. We are going home. Let's pray together. Lord, thank You for this great, glorious hope we have. A hope that is secure because our Savior died and rose again and ascended on high. We thank You, Lord Jesus, that one day You will come again for Your people and You will judge the living and the dead and You will send evildoers off to everlasting torment even as You gather Your people and bring us to our eternal home in the new heavens and the new earth. Lord, speed that day. We long for it. We yearn for it. May it come quickly. For we pray in Christ's name. Amen.